Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Quick note before we begin, the Finding Genius Foundation, as part of the Finding Genius Podcast, has recently completed a book about understanding viruses. So the creation of this book was to interview 100 virologists, ask them a lot of deep, difficult questions, take the most difficult questions, and then re-interview the top 25 or so and ask them the hardest questions I could think of. And we compiled that all into a book. So you'll see question and four or five experts' answers. Question, four or five experts' answers. There's about 30 questions in the book. I think it's a great read for the layperson and for the researcher. It talks about a lot of speculation in the world of viruses, such as are they alive or not, and why is it important? Uh, why do viruses go latent or hidden or ineffective or sit in a person or an animal or another creature for weeks, months, years? and then suddenly become virulent and affect that person. Uh, so there's a lot of really provocative questions in the book. It's now on Amazon. So if you go to Amazon and type in Finding Genius, you'll see the book on viruses. It's also on Kindle. If you want to go and order it now, uh, you can do so again by going to Amazon or Kindle, or go, go to FindingGeniusFoundation.org and go to Publications. There's an opportunity as well to get the transcripts of all the interviews and to hear the original interviews themselves. If we had put them all together, the book would be about a thousand pages, but we condensed them down to make it juicy and concise and tight and very interesting. So I hope you'll check out the book. Uh, we're now working on one about cancer, but this is going to be our goal is uh, three times a year to come out with these masterclass books that I think will inspire new scientific research. And I hope you'll check it out. Thank you. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius podcast, now part of the Finding Genius Foundation. I have a returning guest, uh, Dr. Bill McGraw. We've talked several times. Uh, he's an expert in uh, several different interesting areas. We've talked about aquaponics. We talked about what happens uh, in regards to his book on mercury, the ultimate truth in chronic disease. Since he has many interests, uh, I wanted to have him back to talk today about GMO foods, specifically uh, GMO salmon. So, Bill, thanks for coming back. Well, uh, thanks very much for having me back again, Richard. So we were going to talk about the history of GMOs and then get into GMO salmon, which I guess came about right near to where you live. So if you can, first, tell me about uh, the history of GMOs. When did they first appear on the scene? How were they contemplated, et cetera? Wow, what an incredible story. We'll go back to the year 1972, and then Secretary of State Henry Kissinger really started the ball rolling on GMOs, and his famous quote was, control the food, control the people which I found pretty interesting for us in his position to say, well, 1974 comes around and the first genetically modified bacteria was produced. And during the next couple of years, it was debated uh, how dangerous GMOs really were. And it was determined that they were really dangerous for the environment. There was great concern about the scientists that produced the genetically modified bacteria. And one of the mighty bones of contention back then and still exists today was that the GMO people wanted to let everyone know that creating a GMO was the same thing as natural reproduction and nothing could be further from the truth. Uh, GMOs are vastly different 
from normal reproduction and the fact that they create abnormal proteins, which are incredibly difficult for the body to digest when they're, in, when they're ingested. And these GMO fragment proteins uh, can create inflammation in the human body or in an animal that eats a GMO product. So that's one of the biggest problems and there's uh, many others. Uh, but I'll continue on one, with the history. Oh, Go ahead. One question. You know, I saw one paper on this and it seemed like, you know, the whole thing was decided. I always wondered, I don't know if you have any insight into all the genetic material of the foods we eat. You know, if we eat a plant or if we eat an animal or whatever we eat, what happens to it? Do you think that our bodies use any of the genetic material or do we just digest everything and it all gets broken down and yeah, the yeah, genetic material of the food we eat means nothing? Yeah, that's just one incredibly important question. Well, the answer is that 95% of all corn, cotton, soybeans, and sugar beets are genetically modified in modern commercial agriculture in the United States. So uh, if you're eating processed foods, you're eating GMOs. Uh, unfortunately, what happens is that these GMO uh, proteins are really malformed, okay? When we look at the more advanced structures of the proteins, they're malformed, and the body that consumes these GMO products has a hard time digesting them. And what happens is uh, they hang out in the intestine for a long period of time, or they can go through the intestine if there's leaky gut syndrome, which so many people have. They get into the blood. And then the body looks at these GMO foreign proteins as exactly that, foreign, and they mount an immune response. They mount an attack against them. So not only does it create an inflammatory response against the GMO fragment, but also any other protein that resembles the GMO fragment will also be attacked. And this results in the classic autoimmune disorders where the body is attacking sheet coverings of nerves, and it's attacking different organs and parts of the body, and you end up with all kinds of arthritis and what have you. So, you know, that's obviously a long story, but most definitely these GMO uh, foreign malformed proteins get into the body, and they're hard to break down, and they cause all kinds of problems. Yeah, that's interesting, because if you're healthy and you don't have a leaky gut, you're more likely, I guess, to, to just pass these things. But if you do have a leaky gut and you're unhealthy, perhaps by eating them in the first place, then it exacerbates that. It makes it worse. Like you said, it would spill into the blood. Absolutely. In the scientific literature that's peer-reviewed, you will find studies that uh, implicitly state that GMO compounds in, in aquaculture feeds can be found in fish weeks after the fish stopped eating the feeds that contain the GMO components. So that's really? readily found in the research. You know, anyone could go online and look that up and, and read those papers and, and determine uh, that information for themselves. Yeah, um, offline, I'll have to ask you maybe for, a, you know, a paper or two, if you would send it to me. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Just go to my website and look up uh, the GMO paper that I published, which we're going to talk about in a minute, hopefully. And then okay. you'll see all my sources there. I have all the papers listed at the end of the article where you can just look up that that uh, scientific paper yourself and, and have a read of the abstract. It tells you in plain English. It's not that hard to understand, I don't think. And so you could figure that out for yourself. Okay, well, continuing on with the story. So you were saying that uh, sure. people learned how to, you know, get bacteria to produce some different compounds. So, you know, how, how else did GMOs come to be? Right. So going from 1974, where the first bacteria was genetically modified, we'll move to 1982, where uh, the first GMO plant was produced. Okay. And they used a infectious bacteria to transfer the GMO fragment into the plants. 
and they use something called a cauliflower mosaic virus as a promoter. Now, what a promoter is, is a piece of uh, basically a, a genetic fragment that they attach to the gene of the desired trait, which tells the host organism, okay, you need to begin producing this trait from this gene that's about to come next in the order of uh, protein formation. In other words, reading that gene so that the protein can be reformed. So a GMO fragment contains first a promoter, which tells the body, hey, produce this trait, okay? Uh, then the trait comes, and after the trait comes a terminator section, which tells the body, okay, this is where the trait ends, and you can stop uh, copying the, the genetic code to produce this protein, it's over. And so what happens is they get good promoters, which tells the host organism produce lots of copies of this trait, and sometimes at the expense of the health of the organism. So in other words, this host organism becomes a slave to the production of the desired trait, and we're going to talk about that in just a second. Now, during the next two or three years, uh, GMO companies did produce a transgenic trout and goldfish. In fact, they went on to do 50 different aquatic species. That was in uh, China. A lot of the work occurred in China. One quick question. What characteristics were they trying to modify in, in different animals and plants? Oh, boy, that list is quite extensive. But, you know, it, it go, look, I'll give you this example. I'm at uh, Harbor Branch Oceanographic Institute in Fort Pierce, Florida, working on my postdoctoral fellowship. And a good friend of mine was working on producing a tropical fish that had a gene that you know, we could put a gene into it to make it glow. And so he took a, a gene from a, a, an animal or a plant that, that would produce uh, a glow. It was probably a luciferase or some kind of uh, enzyme like that. And he shot it into the embryo of the fish and the very few embryos would accept that gene, but the ones that did would cause the fish to glow. So there were things like that going on and there were also, also growth studies and and different things like that, but none of them came to commercial reality until the year 2013, where the first GMO salmon came out. So the list is extensive. You can look it up. Before we continue, I've been personally funding the Finding Genius podcast for four and a half years now, which has led to 2,700 plus interviews of clinicians, researchers, scientists, CEOs, and other amazing people who are working to advance science and improve our lives and our world. Even though this podcast gets 100,000 plus downloads a month, we need your help to reach hundreds of thousands more worldwide. Please visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click on Support Us. We have three levels of membership from 10 to $49 a month, including perks such as the ability to see ahead in our interview calendar and ask questions of upcoming guests, transcripts of podcasts you're interested in, the ability to request specific topics or guests, and more. Visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click Support Us today. Now back to the show online and I'll send you the, the uh, source to, to look up that table. But uh, getting back, in 1989, the first commercial GMO product was produced and it was the amino acid tryptophan. So they genetically engineered a bacteria to produce excessive copies of the amino acid tryptophan. And they created a product, a pill that basically people could take uh, to, uh, to receive uh, the amino acid tryptophan. Now, the problem was, basically, right after they took these products, within a few days, they developed skin lesions, and they developed neuropathy, and this product wind up killing 37 people and then permanently disabling 1,500 others. So, obviously, the product was quickly discontinued, and you can say the first GMO product 
for, for human consumption was absolute disaster and they had to take it off the market. Now, this whole story is about to get a whole lot more interesting. Come the year 1994, they genetically modified a growth hormone, okay, for a cow to produce more milk. And it did, it produced 20% more milk on average. However, uh, using this hormone, it was linked to cause cancer in the cows and then also increased number of infections in the cows, which then they had to combat naturally with antibiotics. Well, these antibiotic residues ended up in the milk and causing cause, cause problems to people who drank the milk. So it was discontinued in 1999 in the European Union. And lo and behold, in the great United States, it was discontinued just a few years later. So that again, well, we could say that was a marginal success for that product. Now, uh, 1994, again, the first GMO product that was a plant was produced. It was called the Flavor Saver Tomato. And what they did was they genetically engineered a tomato so that it wouldn't ripen as fast, okay? So that would stay on the shelf longer and sit there and people could get a chance to buy it and eat it sooner. But unfortunately, the Flavor Saver Tomato didn't last in shipping, okay? And it didn't handle well. And lo and behold, big surprise, here it comes. It didn't taste good. Whoops, oh, bummer. So uh, that was quickly taken off the shelves and discontinued. But luckily, nobody died. So that was good, right? And it was shown that about 10% of the rats that can consume the GMO tomato develop stomach lesions, and many of them, about a third of them, uh, died within two weeks. So that, you know, obviously quickly removed and everything was sort of, uh, we can't say that. Now, son of a gun, 1995 to 1998 were some of the most important years for GMO research. And this was done at the Rowett Research Institute of Scotland by a Dr. Arpad Pustayi, which is a Hungarian name. And he worked for that company for 32 years. Now, what this uh, research scientist did, who was by, by and far one of the best in his field, what he did was genetically engineer a potato that so it would contain increased amounts of a natural pesticide known as a lectin. Now, this lectin gene was from a snowdrop plant. So once again, they took out this uh, gene that code for a lectin, and they suited it up with a promoter and a terminator end, and they injected into a, an embryo uh, for a potato, and some, most of them didn't accept it. And the ones that did, they grew it. They grew this potato. And then they fed it to rats, as you do, right, for a GMO study. Well, the, the rats do, developed abnormal growths, and I've seen the slides, abnormal growths in the intestine. Uh, they had the, the rats that ate the GMO potatoes had smaller heart, liver, and kidneys, and they had other problems uh, as well. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. Now, this research was published in the Lancet Journal, which is the premier journal for medical research in the European Union. As soon as it was, as it was published, Dr. Arpad was immediately fired by the Rowett Institute. And that was, I guess, pretty, pretty hard. That's one hardcore way to get the old word out on the GMOs, huh? Uh, that was one of the landmark studies for GMOs. And I don't know how many people really are aware of that, but that's what happened. Uh, now, during the 1990s, um, the GMO crops, such as the Roundup Ready soybean, I'm sure everybody knows about that, was really uh, pushed in the uh, country of Argentina. And the Argentinians were sort of like the guinea pigs for consuming GMO soybeans. And of course, they used the Roundup Ready glyphosate. 
Now, back in the day, they probably said, well, now look here, this glyphosate's perfectly fine. You can drink it. Oh, boy. I hope they didn't. Because what happens is, if you fast forward a couple of decades, we're going to find out that glyphosate has been shown to cause cancer by the courts system of California. People are getting paid billions of dollars now uh, if they develop cancer from the use of glyphosate. So it's not so, you know, user-friendly. It's not so safe. But even, maybe even more importantly, what this Roundup Ready has done is killed most of the weeds, but left a couple of them there. Now, these uh, Roundup Ready uh, resistant weeds were then going to take over because their, their genes that made them resistant to the chemical were passed on to the next generation of weeds and so on until they became completely resistant to the, the chemical glyphosate and the Roundup Ready. Well, lo and behold, if you destroyed all of the other weeds except for this one super weed, you just set out the, the field ready for this super weed to take over. So it killed all the competing weeds. And then it allowed this super weed to have the genes to resist the Roundup Ready. Well, now the farmers had to start using triple the amount of Roundup Ready. Well, since uh, it is a cancer-causing compound glyphosate, you've entered a, a mighty big quagmire. And so far, the, uh, the number, I think there's 1,200 court cases waiting to be heard. And, well, I guess you'd call that a sort of a loss loss situation. But Monsanto, I hear, has made quite a bit of money, so maybe they're not concerned. Well, tell me, tell me a bit specifically about glyphosate, what's been observed about it, what foods is it in, you know, how pervasive and dangerous is it? Oh, boy. Well, glyphosate has been found in most water bodies used for drinking. In, in Panama, it is used so excessively that just about everybody in every farm, unless it's specifically and aggressively organic, glyphosate is used basically to kill off grasses and weeds because in Panama, stuff grows so fast that if you stand in a field longer than a day, the weeds will take you over and grow past your head. That's how fast stuff grows. I mean, stuff can really grow at an inch per day at least. And so glyphosate is used extensively here, and people have developed allergies. I personally know people that have developed allergies so bad that they can't stand to be near it. It's, because, it's called chemical sensitivity. Now, glyphosate is used all over the place uh, as, a, you know, as a way of killing off weeds and grasses that you don't want. So it's used all over the world, and it's caused uh, lots of problems. Look, if it gets into the waterway, it will kill off all of the crustaceans in the streams, and I've seen this in Panama. People use different compounds, including glyphosate, just to kill a lot of stuff in the stream so they can harvest it and eat it. So this stuff is pretty mean, pretty mean. Right now, uh, GMO soybeans are used in the countries of the United States, Brazil, and Argentina, and China. That's where probably 90% of all the Roundup Ready soybeans are being used, and that's where you'll find your highest levels of glyphosate in drinking water. And you can find uh, glyphosate in drinking water probably in all those countries readily, readily. You know, the next the next thing we can talk about is 96, 95 and 96, we had a BT GMO corn and cotton produced. Now, what this what this genetically modified organism did was produce a pesticide from a bacteria known as Bacillus thuringiensis, which basically was a natural pesticide. But the organisms of the corn and the cotton produced excessive amounts of it. And once again, this pesticide was malformed and existed in the environment for months after it made its way into the soils from the plants. And so this was another ecological concern going on here. And it did, it was uh, reported in scientific journals to have negative effects on beneficial insects and negative effects on the aquatic life and streams and uh, flat out kills certain numbers of things. So I, 
you know, I can't say this was a success. I, I can't say that GMO corn grows faster than regular corn. It certainly does not. In fact, most cases it actually grows less. But what it does do is it creates excessive amounts of profit for the companies making these chemicals. They really become quite wealthy. And onward we go. Uh, and as far as the GMO research, it's certainly going to continue forward. Uh, approximately 84% of all genetically engineered crops have been have been developed so they can resist the application of herbicides. Well, if you're using three times the herbicide, you're certainly going to make a lot of money if you're if you're the person or the company developing uh, these uh, chemicals on a regular basis. I have okay. a, a question. So, if, if you have a, a compound that has one modification, you know, one GMO modification, what do you call that versus one? I mean, are there ones that have two, three, four, five, six, seven, ten modifications all in the same plant or food? Uh, there could be, but I'll tell you what, the development of a GMO organism takes decades because what you're doing is taking this trait from one species and putting it into another. And when you inject that genetic foreign genetic piece into another species of animal, what happens is you disrupt the genetic code for that entire chromosome. And then that uh, species, that whole species containing the foreign uh, DNA produces proteins all along that chromosome, which are foreign and toxic. And then it starts producing proteins that have never been seen before that are also toxic. So this animal is truly a mutant to the point where it probably won't grow. And less than 0.1% of all the uh, organisms that are injected with the foreign DNA don't ever develop because it's such an arduous task to get this plant or this animal to accept this foreign piece of DNA. And much of the time, the plant or animal that receives the foreign DNA kicks it out. It gets rid of that foreign DNA and then it reassembles the gene so that it's somewhat normal again and then continues growing. So that plant would have to be destroyed and then you have to start all over again. So most of the time these things grow, when these plants and animals grow up, they grow up to be absolute mutants and like 0.0001% will ever make it to a stage where it's going to be potentially commercially produced. And if it is commercially produced, it will still produce aberrant forms of that species. And then the, the, the company growing the GMO product will have to continually cull and, and just get rid of all these mutants that are formed. And they may have a few trophy fish, or they may have a few trophy plants that will actually survive uh, the genetic manipulation process, which is so incredibly damaging. And those are the ones you're going to see uh, on TV or whatever. And, and so uh, that's the way it happens. So most of the time, it's such a task to get one gene to survive in a genetic component of an organism so that organism will grow and look semi-normal. But that semi-normal looking animal or plant is certainly kicking out malformed proteins on a regular basis because when you inject that gene into that chromosome, into that normal chromosome, that chromosome breaks apart and then reforms all mixed up. And so when it copies these proteins that are associated next to that desired trait that's been injected, these proteins are all kinds of screwed up and they're kicked out in all different, several different forms. There are certain proteins that are kicked out that are absolutely never been seen before in the history of the human race. And these things can get into the environment. They can be copied as plasmids and transferred into normal bacteria in streams and fields and then go on to be transferred up the food chain into other animals and plants and create an ecological disaster for the likes we have never seen. So it certainly is a Russian roulette when you're making a GMO. 
But of course, that all that information what, is suppressed. So go, ahead, go ahead. What about a bioaccumulation effect? So if I eat a cow that eats GMO corn and other items, so not only right. is the cow getting it, but now right. I'm eating the cow. Um, right. Is it bioaccumulating? What do you think happens? Absolutely. So the more GMOs you, you ingest, the more inflammation you're likely to have. Remember, the top two diseases that are currently killing everybody are, are heart disease and cancer. And these are inflammatory based. I know because I've been curing people for cancer for the past six years. And I know that there has to be a detox procedure where the toxicities have to be reduced so that the, the immune system calms down, the inflammatory process is halted, and that the body can recognize cancer cells on its own through its normal white blood cells and destroy the cancer cells. But if that immune system is compromised by inflammatory processes created by GMO foods, then it just doesn't work. So absolutely, the more GMO foods that you're consuming, the more inflammation you're going to have, the more likely you're going to come down to, with one of the major inflammatory diseases, which are heart disease, number one, number two, various types of cancer. And now probably three and four would be some sort of autoimmune disorder. And the list goes on, such as arthritis and lupus and so on. All of these toxicities created by GMOs create all these chronic diseases. Look at, you know, look, not even considering that, look what happened to glyphosate. People have determined now that glyphosate causes cancer. And if you get cancer from glyphosate, you may get a billion-dollar payout from Monsanto. How about that for a you know, kick in the butt? Basically is that uh, the more GMOs uh, that you eat, the more likely you're going to have malformed proteins in your body. And the more likely those malformed proteins are going to be looked upon in your body as a threat mounting, uh, creating uh, a cascade effect what they call the cytokine storm by the people who are studying the coronavirus. So this is basically the recycling of these neurotransmitters and these white blood cells that create an inflammatory response. And once the inflammatory response has happened, it basically turns off the detox mechanisms in the body, toxicities increase, and chronic disease ensues, just like uh, the guy consuming the glyphosate, which ends up with the cancer, which then receives a billion-dollar payout from Monsanto. So that, that whole process is absolutely correct. What you stated is that the more GMO products that you consume, the more toxicity you're going to have, the more inflammatory processes, and the greater chance of getting chronic disease and dying from it. Um, you said GMOs have achieved 95% penetration in plants or in not in animals, I mean, or both? Or Okay, so what I said... That 95% we talked about is 95% corn, soybeans, cotton, and sugar beets are genetically modified. And that's what is being used for these commercial corporate farms that are kicking out all of these products, which are then end up in processed foods. Think about your, uh, your, your, all the corn syrups and everything that are made that are put in every single processed food that you can find. Well, that's all genetically modified. Of course, genetically modified corn syrups and so on there. They're all over the place. It's hard to avoid. You basically have to avoid... Uh, processed foods on a whole. And that's where these where these fantastic diets are breaking out. You know, the keto diet and the paleo diets. You know, people are are, are, are getting more switched on to the fact that if you eat these whole foods, right, uh, if you eat these organic foods, well, chances are that you're going to be able to avoid the toxicities, the inflammatory processes, and avoid chronic disease. That's why these, these diets have come about, really, to avoid processed foods and inflammation. Absolutely. But if, you know, if corn, I mean, can you ever eat corn, for instance, or because 95% of it is modified? Yeah. Well, how do you find you know, unmodified? 
Well, what you're going to have to do is get organic corn that is not only organic, but away from any other GMO corn. Because what happens is the pollen that's produced from the GMO corn can then travel through the air and infect an organic corn crop. And then that GMO fragment can be transferred to the organic corn crop and become a genetically modified organism. And from there, you're in big trouble because Monsanto has, has, has patented every single GMO fragment they've ever produced. And if they find out that their GMO fragment is in your organic corn, you're gonna have to pay a fee, you may get fined. You may be in big trouble, not only that, but you're gonna lose your organic certification. So if your organic corn is way, way away from the GMO corn, you're in much better shape. So the bottom line is you need to grow your organic fruits and vegetables away from any GMOs because that pollen can affect similar crops and, and be incorporated incorporated into the into the non-GMO crops, and, and that can be. But have have, have lawsuits like that worked? I mean, so a farmer is there; they haven't bought any Monsanto stuff. Yep. it's not their fault. It's drifted over to their field. Yeah, and they still can be sued, and, and that's right. But they have to prove that they have the genetic fragment. What will happen is probably the farmer will have to be destroy all those crops before anything goes to court. It's a big quagmire. It's a big problem. Everything is patented, like you wouldn't believe, and. And they, they covet these patents. Remember in 1972, when this thing first started, they said, control the food, control the people. And they were talking about seeds. If you control all the seeds while the crop's grown, man, you're going to control everything. You're going to control food. Hunger is a powerful thing. And if people are hungry, you can make them do anything. So it's, it's a dangerous game that we play when we allow all these GMOs to be uh, used and manipulated in, in agriculture and, and put in every single uh, type of food uh, uh, that we that we have that's known, right? So yeah, definitely. Yeah. It was just really interesting. I had just very important questions. I think that's why yeah, I interrupted no, you. But, but, no, but please no, go ahead. No, How did absolutely. this go from plants then to animals or oh, fish or other? Creatures? What? And I'll tell you what. The, this this story has got an incredible end. Uh, and you're, you're welcome to jump in anytime to the question. I really, I really love these podcasts. Okay, we'll go to the year 2013. For the first time in human history, a, a genetically modified animal is being produced for human consumption. This happens five miles up the road in the, in the mountains of Panama. And they brought it to Panama basically because they could do it. You know, you can get into Panama and, you know, the right person makes the right arrangement. And there you go. Bob's your uncle, as they say, right? We grow the GMO salmon. Now, five miles away, I'm working on my organic farm growing shrimp in zero-one exchange systems. I'm going to Latvia and Koi. I'm the first person in the world to grow this Pacific spiny lobster in a zero-one exchange system. I did it at 5 kgs per cubic meter. That's another story. Bottom line is I find out about this. I get pretty excited. I go to the editor of one of the websites that I that I write for regularly. And I say, look, this is happening. We're, they're growing a GMO salmon here. I want to write an article about it. I can't find much information about it. He agrees. I read every book, well, half of the books that I bought on GMOs, the most important ones on the history of genetic modification. I read them. I write this article. And then I include information, all the latest information in the scientific papers on this GMO salmon. How is it produced? What, what genes are they using? Where are they growing it? I mean, how exciting stuff. This is pretty exciting for, for, a, for an aquaculture scientist. Well, the paper finally comes about. It's 10 pages. They publish it on a major website for aquaculture. It's going to be there for six weeks. It's a bi-monthly publication. It's there three days, and it's taken down. I called the editor. I said, hey, where's my, where's my article? I worked so hard on it. I thought you liked it. He said, yes, we loved it. But Aquabounty called us and told us to take it down. And I said, whoa, 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 whoa. hold the horses here. What do you mean they told you to take it down? What source was wrong? 
they said, no, there's no source wrong with it. They agreed with everything. They just said, they told us they didn't think it was fair and told us to take it down. And we did. And I said, I can't believe this. I was a bit livid. I said, you can't just do it, take a paper down like that. I worked so hard. And they said, well, you weren't here to defend it. We took it down. And I said to myself, and I said to the editor, well, I guess I won't write any more GMO articles anymore. Well, I won't get published. And I went on to write other articles on inflammation and mineral deficiencies and, and aquaculture and so on. But it kind of stuck in my craw. So years later, I, I do a big presentation at the local community center here in Boquete, Panama. And I invite Aquabani down to see my presentation. I, I, they didn't show up, but they did potentially send one pro-GTMO guy who got up at the end of my presentation and started hollering and, you know, made a fool out of himself because there were other people with questions and he took up the whole question and answer period. Fine. Very oh, well. What was he yelling about? Just quick, oh, quick he time. was yelling that he worked for a GMO company and it wasn't all bad and they produced some plant that would survive a saltwater environment. Look, I, all I did was present the facts. All I want to do is put the cards on the table, tell the facts as they are, tell the story the way it is with my sources and let people figure out for themselves whether or not GMOs are all right to use. That's all I want to do. I don't even want to offer an opinion as to whether or not they're good or bad. Look, for all I know in the future, GMOs could be the saving grace with climate change. I don't know if there is such a thing as climate change. I don't really agree with it, but that's another story. But look, I, I, I want to just put the information out there who knows if future generations GMO crops could be the answer. But for right now, I just want to put the information out there, let people make up their own mind and get that get that information out there to the people who are interested. That's about it. So getting on to the GMO salmon, I'll just quickly give you the rundown. The GMO salmon was genetically modified so that it has a copy of a growth hormone from the Chinook salmon. And there is a promoter piece of uh, DNA from a ocean pout, which is a bottom-dwelling fish. Okay, so you've got all genes from fish, basically, in a, a another fish. And supposedly, this fish grows twice as fast as, it's, as a normal salmon. But the literature I've looked at says that maybe they're jumping the gun, there's too many mutants form, uh, the growth rates don't add up. The studies that they've submitted to the FDA are with uh, shoddy uh, designs and with limited amounts of data, and they sort of cherry-picked the data, and they're not looking uh, that good as far as being able to be used as a way to say that this GMO is the real bomb here. This is the answer. So right now, you know, Aqua Bounty is in Indiana, I think, and they're growing their GMO salmon. I couldn't get an interview. They don't answer my emails, but as far as I know, they have a, they have a, a, a system there that can produce 1,200 metric tons of GMO salmon. There is no requirement to label the salmon as GMO, which means on she goes right into the supermarket with the rest of the salmon, and you can't tell the difference. Uh, there's no GMO labeling. And far as yeah. I know, maybe some, nobody quick, will tell you. Quick question here. So I think just like with plants, I've heard that you know when they do fish farms and they'll do GMO, whatever fish it is, sometimes right. the fish will escape you know, right. the ponds and get into the neighboring waters and then mate right. Right. with wild-caught fish. So what happens there? What does it produce? And even if we eat wild-caught stuff, if there's farms nearby, are we still right. eating half-breeds of GMO? Yes. yes, that can absolutely happen. Uh, what's happened is the salmon is particularly aggressive and it can go in and outcompete the, the native wild salmon. But I will say, uh, in fairness, that uh, the GMO salmon is supposed to be sterile. 
it's a triploid, meaning that it's a sterile uh, salmon that contains three copies of the genetic material. And this is a standard procedure used to make a sterile uh, animal used in aquaculture. They do it in oysters. So this, this GMO salmon is supposed to be sterile if it gets out into the environment. And it's uh, supposed to be a zero water exchange system, which means it's perfectly and all contained within uh, a system. And I'm sure there's plenty of security guards and fences there on site. And I'm sure that all of the pipes leading out into wherever have, all have cages and, and there's probably no pipes even allowed out of that facility. So the chances of this thing getting out and reproducing this GMO salmon are very, very, very low. Because even if it got out there, it's still sterile. However, if it did get out into the environment, it's a very aggressive species. It's a very aggressive GMO. It will likely outcompete the salmon. And yes, you could end up eating a wild salmon as GMO. Uh, yeah, but chances are it's not going to get out there. And if it did, it won't reproduce. So what are some other nuances to the GMO salmon story that are important? Well, I'll tell you. If you going in a little different direction, if you have a salmon that eats GMO ingredients, those GMO ingredients, in particular the malformed proteins that are hard to digest, can be found in that fish a week later after the fish stops eating the GMO fragments. And they can be in the internal uh, organs. I think I mentioned this, but the two weeks after that fish has been uh, not fed for two weeks, you can still find the uh, protein fragments. Also, the big problem, as I mentioned before, is that these GMO fragments that are in the fish can get out into the, into the environment as a plasmid. And a plasmid is just a, generally a circular piece of DNA that can exist in the environment and then up, up taken up by a, a natural bacteria in the environment, incorporated into that bacterial's natural genes, natural genetic makeup, and then pass that genetically modified plasmid or fragment into another animal. So I think that is one of the big problems. So if they were to, let's say you were a, uh, to take some of that effluent from that GMO salmon recirculating system and dump it out into the environment, chances are that that GMO fragment can be put out into the environment. It can be absorbed by a bacteria and passed up the food chain and can get enter into some wild animal. And then you can end up eating it down the line and who knows what can happen from there. But, you know, right now, I don't know that the company is really producing a whole lot of GMO salmon, but if they do and it gets out into the marketplace, there's no labeling, so you don't know. And no one knows. The first batch of, uh, of GMO salmon from Panama supposedly was destroyed, but then I heard it was shipped up to Canada and fed, the, fed to the Canadians. One other quick thing. Uh, there Supposedly, I have students uh, from my basics of aquaculture class, which I teach regularly, and, and, and I have one from Canada, actually a couple from Canada, and they told me that the Canadians are producing a genetically modified tilapia that's been genetically modified to produce a flesh that's a red color. And apparently it's being sold in the marketplace and they don't have an FDA and that's okay. I guess they patented the technology. So, well, there you go. So that's pretty strange. But, uh, you know, and you could produce a red colored flesh in a fish just by feeding it uh, carotenoids. Uh, such as a pigment. The pigments in the feet get transferred into the fish's flesh. So if you included a pigment, say, from a uh, small crustacean, that pigment will go right into the fish, and the fish will absorb it into the flesh. So there's other ways to do that. But, you know, we're, we're right at the turning point where there's a lot of resistance to GMO salmon, and they, I think there's some kind of court case going on with the FDA as they're not allowed to 
uh, produce this further until it's proven that it won't get out into the environment. And I read something along those lines, but I don't know that that's a big deal. I think I'd rather see studies on uh, the inflammatory potential of this salmon once people eat it. And I'm sure they're going to find that there's probably inflammation. The question is to what extent, in other words, are they going to come out with a recommendation you can only eat one GMO salmon every couple of weeks or every month like they do for mercury and tuna? Well, it took the FDA 50 years to come out with a guideline that says you're only allowed, if you're a pregnant woman, you're only allowed to eat one can of tuna per week or you're going to potentially damage your unborn fetus because that mercury goes right past the placental barrier to the unborn fetus and that gets attached there. It could be Your child could be born with a mercury burden and a and defects potentially uh uh, we can be born abnormal. Yeah, well, speaking of convoluted, so if I eat farmed salmon or farm-raised right. salmon, yes, or or just what's called, I guess unless salmon, for instance, is labeled as wild-caught, does it mean it's farmed? Like if it's called Atlantic salmon, right. does that mean anything? If, it, if it's called farm salmon, is that GMO? Right. Like what, what are people you getting for the most part? You don't know because the FDA has ruled that there's no labeling required. You don't know. Your best bet, if you're really going to avoid this GMO thing, is to find some organic labeling or find something that's labeled wild caught. People have to go back to their seafood market and say, where did this come from? How do I know? You know, and go all the way back to the fishermen if you can and say, sir, did you really get this? I mean, it's going to get to the point where you've got to learn your your seafood monger or whatever. So uh, take, for instance, in Panama, there's people who, who drive around in these trucks and sell the seafood. You can ask them, hey, man. Where did this come from? How fresh is it? Pick it up, look at it, smell it, touch it. Do you want to buy it? Uh, For instance, you can buy a smaller tuna that has a whole lot less mercury than the large ones, 10 times less, and you're better off buying a smaller tuna and eating it. Or better yet, get it from Panama Fresh Organic where we sell organic seafood directly to to the consumer. And then they know me and they know my standards, so they feel very comfortable in buying my, my organic seafood because they know my I'm a, I'm a person that has a very high integrity, and I, I, I mean what I say, and I do what I, I, I mean, and, and so they can trust me, and I know all of them. They're like friends and family. So the bottom line is to get in with the seafood seller, figure out who this guy is. Can you trust him? Where does this stuff come from? And, and can you know the rest of the people involved? Get to know them. Get to know your seafood guy and figure out you know, for yourself. It's a bottom line. It's up to the consumer now to, to do their homework because the FDA will not do the homework for you. That's for sure. Yeah, that's terrible. And most people are not going to go to any length to do any of that. Some will, Correct. but most Correct. won't. Correct. Them's, them's the breaks. Them's the breaks. So, man, um, for instance, I give this hour-long lecture to John White who developed this movie to do software. He just wants people to be able to grow their own food. Well, there you go. Grow your own food. Try to grow your own food. It's not that hard to grow tilapia. As a, as a food item to eat, it's, it's not that hard to grow tomatoes or lettuces and so on with fertile soils that have been composted and contain lots of minerals. These mineralized soils, whether you grow your agricultural products in by yourself in your backyard, are better able to resist disease, are better able to resist pests. In fact, in fact pests find uh, plants that are, are, are in good health and have lots of minerals. They find them less desirable to eat. And so they avoid them and they look for a plant that is maybe loaded with pesticides or they look for a plant that's loaded with herbicides and in poor condition and they find that more attractive to eat, believe it or not. It's a mad bull. So where, where does it go from here? What's the future of um, the GMO foods? It's probably well, not a good one, but what is it? Well, I tell you, it's going to come down to 
You know, you know, we're be, we're becoming GMO foods with the latest. Uh, right. Vaccine. You know what? What do you think so, the future is? So well, the, yeah. the future of GMOs would be that I think the GMO companies understand that we're a lot of people are onto them, and that they understand that people are becoming wise to GMO or, or, or organisms when consumed produce inflammation, and so they're going to further refine the GMO process, and they're eventually going to come out with studies that look at information. The paper I just read on the GMO salmon stated that they're creating tests that can identify that GMO fragment that's in that salmon and, and foods. So I think they're going to become more complicit in realizing that they have to have tests that are going to show that this GMO fragment is not on the environment and other foods. And they're going to have to conduct studies that show that there's a limited amount of inflammation when a person or animal consumes this GMO salmon. They're eventually going to have to come around to that because people are getting more wise and eventually there's going to become more more uh, disease and, and people are going to come down with more problems. So I think they're going to further uh, refine the GMO process to the point where, where it produces a lot of less inflammation. And I think then the GMO process may go forward. But until then, I don't know. As people are waking up now to some of these problems of inflammation and GMOs, all of the people here where I live, well, let's say 70% are quite switched on to GMOs. They know GMOs aren't any good. And organic farming is big here. People will go out of their way to avoid. Now, chances, chances, of course, there's a 30% uh, population here that doesn't care. Oh, no, if GMOs were a problem, we'd know about it. How long have you lived there? And as you look around at the people there, do they look different, healthier, you know, fatter, thinner, et cetera, than Americans? Well, I would say that, I, well, first off, I've been here 11 years, and I would say that people here are generally fairly overweight. And a, 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 lar- a large part of that is that their diet is not rich in organic foods and not rich in minerals, so they develop cravings, what we call pica, and they start eating a lot of sugars, and they start eating a lot of junk, so they consume a lot of GMOs and processed foods. There's a lot of sugar in processed foods, and, and processed foods are consumed a lot more so probably by the, the regular Panamanians, and also the expats here consume a lot of a lot of probably processed foods, but there is, like I said, a certain percentage that will go out of their way to get those organic products. And we have a market here in Boquete where you can go and specifically get organic products and people are, are switched on to it, but there's definitely a divide there. There's a division where certain people are switched on and know about organic products. And these people are very healthy, by the way. When you took a, take, a, take a look at them and talk to them, they're pretty smart, they're switched on and they're healthy, healthier than the people that eat a lot of junk foods the processed foods that contain a lot of GMOs. If you look at those people that say, I don't care, they're generally in, in much poorer health and they get, they get uh, more chronic infections. I know because I treat some of these people that come to me and I've talked to them about their diets. And if their diets are junk, their immune systems are also in poor shape and they come down with these chronic infections and then I have to treat them and I have to lecture them for three hours on the importance of avoiding uh, all these GMO crops and the toxicities associated with pesticides and herbicides. And they have to consume minerals and avoid chronic disease and get rid of their parasites and so on. So the field of, of alternative medicine that I do is just so intriguing and fulfilling because I can really create dramatic changes in people by incorporating good nutrition and life technology. And I hope we get a chance to talk about that really soon. It's, it's so amazing. It's so interesting. Well, very good, Bill. I mean, yeah, you've got a lot of different uh, resources for people. So where, where can they go? You mentioned I, your website. What is it? And where's, where can people find out more info? Okay, sure. Uh, they go to my website, which is newaquatechpanama.com. 
So that's just N-A-W-A-Q-U-A-T-E-C-H-B-A-N-A-M-A.com. And there you'll find the GMO article, the 10-pager that I published on my website that was taken down after three days of being published on an aquaculture website because, quote, unquote, it was not fair. You'll also find on my website information of my basics of aquaculture class that I teach. I do focus on organic farming. I do focus on aquaponics. And after my course, you certainly will be able to grow your own seafood, most definitely. And also you'll find my podcast, such as the one we're on, we're doing now, as well as all the rest of my articles uh, and the rest of my interviews. So there's tons and tons of information there on my website. And if you look up just Bill, Dr. Bill McGraw and, and Panama, you find a ton of other stuff, my, my presentations and all sorts of stuff there. Very good. Well, Bill, thank you as always, and I appreciate you being here. Thank you very much, Richard, for having me. I, I really enjoyed it. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.